The Sour Hour is meant for the serious brewer. The Sour Hour may contain some seriously funkified content. The Sour Hour is not for the faint of heart. So exercise some damn discretion, would you please? Sheesh. And now, here's the Sour Hour with Jay Goodwin. that time part two we're on with trevor rogers head brewer of degard brewing company trevor you with us yes i am sorry oh caught you taking a sip he was shotgunning real quick (laughs) hold on let me just finish yeah when are you guys going to come out with beer and cans you know that was a i guess i should say was and is still a goal of ours eventually uh Unfortunately, right now we're just trying to keep up with demand and, and keep up with our our kind of steady and modest state uh, state of growth. Uh, it had to get put on the back burner, and we're still waiting to hear back from uh, a couple of canning companies on uh, pH tolerance or the pH. Uh, uh, yeah, I guess tolerance would probably be the appropriate word uh, for their their can linings. Um, you know, we don't want to put a, a product in cans just to be in cans. We want it to be the best product we can put in cans. Good point. Uh, you know, I've heard some things about cans lately that they're like out of cans. Like p- people are having a real hard time finding cans. I forget what brewer I was talking to about this, but they made like all their beers in cans, and someone bought like all of them up, and no one knows who it was. You're like, kidding? Yeah, you should. Well, uh, you know, obviously, a growing segment of the market, and that's a great thing. It's drastically less expensive than bottles. Uh, and has you know some of the the similar properties uh, that are uh, the bottles, the expensive ones we do use uh, as far as pressure rating. Uh, so we, we definitely encourage the growth. But damn, is, that, I hadn't heard that unfortunately. Is yeah. there is there no such thing as uh, pH tolerant can lining? Well, the tough part is we've had the inquiries in uh, as far as what the the tolerance is for the lining, uh, and we keep hearing yeah it'll be fine, but I'm not getting a uh, report back on exactly what is uh, too acidic. And hmm. unfortunately, we we can't control our pH. Uh, you know, we, we can encourage it to to end up somewhere, but, you know, you're going to have some batches that might be plus or minus, you know, 0.2 pH. And if that tolerance or, or that, that level of, of rating for the can is going to be 0.1 lower, then we can't, we don't want to cross, cross, cross that threshold. Hmm. Isn't isn't Coca Cola is that acidic product? It is, that's, isn't that's it? That's about yeah. three point two pH or, or so. So I but I always wondered that about sour beer. You know how would it go? How would it age well in a can? Um, yeah. But I mean, there are plenty of breweries out there who are doing it. They're, they're putting Berliners in cans, which sounds like you know the greatest idea of all time. Basically, that's like the, the best beer to have by a pool ever. Oh my right? god! Oh, that's what we were shotgunning in the parking lot during the break. Oh yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Awesome. No, and you're right. Soda has a, a low pH, but uh, it also is generally meant for quick consumption. People aren't putting that in their cellar for a year or two. And uh, for better or worse, people are doing that with a lot of beer. Um, and I'd hate to see uh, degradation of the, the actual uh, vessel itself over time. I do hear those things from time to time like, oh, if you put a nail in a vat of Coca-Cola concentrate, it'll dissolve the nail. You know, you hear sort of wives' tales like mm-hmm. that. Or maybe it's not a wives' tale. Maybe it's true. So, I mean, you know, if they can can Coke, yeah, 
Yeah, I mean, it'd be nice if the manufacturer got back to you, though. That's, yeah, that's and gave you a real fun. number instead of just like, oh, it's fine. Like, uh, that's not the answer I'm looking for. It'll exactly. be fine. Well, and realistically, you know, our, our big impetus for canning was both uh, portability, of course, for for outdoor uh, activities, recreational stuff, because we all like doing them, uh, particularly in Oregon. That's a, a, a big pastime, like, you know, uh, rafting, hiking, fishing, etc. But also the biggest push was uh, from the, the, the financial side uh, where we wanted, we always strive to keep our beer as, as affordable as possible. And realistically found that, you know, for, for our food to run batches, when we're able to sell 750s for the 4 to $5 uh, range, uh, there's not too much of a uh, a burden to entry, or, or, or uh, you know, it, it's just not that damn expensive. Gotcha. Yeah, five bucks for a big bottle. Yeah. Jeez. Like that. Jay, you taking notes? <laughs> <laughs> I God bless them. I can't afford that. It's amazing. Was that a, was that a consideration before you ever opened? Oh, absolutely, man. Uh, you know, we're we're beer lovers first and foremost, and I don't mean that to make us seem special because i think most uh, of us uh, folks like jay included uh, that are making sour beer come to come into this from a a, a passion versus a, a strictly financial incentive uh, but we wanted going into it to be able to provide the least expensive beer we could and as long as we can pay our bills and live a, a you know a comfortable albeit humble lifestyle then we're, we're pretty darn happy we just like making beer man hmm. And I, I, I know it might seem like a silly question because, like, of course, Scott, they had a business plan. They knew what they were going to charge for their beers, you dumbass. And the reason I ask is, you know, I'm wondering if maybe you, you went into it thinking like, well, people will pay for good beer. So, sure, we're not going to provide the best pricing, but, you know, like, like a J or like a lot of the crap brews out there, people will pay for good beer. And then maybe you discovered at some point once you actually started making beer, hey, you know what? We can actually get away for doing this. Uh, a lot cheaper, and I think maybe people, more people will buy them at five bucks. But I mean, per your answer, that that wasn't the case. But I just want to clarify that I don't think it's a stupid question. Yeah, no, we've you know um, we we actually started out more expensive on average. Uh, it's only when we are able to start growing and affording uh, larger oak tanks that we can benefit from you know uh, the economy of scale. You know, we don't, we don't have to make as much per bottle if we're selling ten thousand bottles or six thousand bottles of something, uh, which most of our food runs are somewhere in between that. Uh, oh, wow. So, you know, we, we basically make up the same profit for the same amount of labor uh, and time uh, versus a higher uh, net profit per bottle. Uh, so it was a goal of ours from the beginning to be able to put the least expensive product in the market. But it took some time to be able to get to the point of being able to do that. And what's your level of production right now? How many barrels are you guys going to brew in 2015? Uh, this year will produce about, uh, 15 to 1600 barrels. Um, we'll sell about, uh, 1000 barrels and next year we'll end up, uh, probably selling about 1200 barrels producing slightly less. Uh, and then as we fill this space, probably at the, by the end of next year, uh, we'll kind of average the two, uh, with sales and production equalizing somewhere in the neighborhood of 13, 1400 Nice. Cool. Thanks for being candid, too, about uh, numbers and pricing and stuff, too, because I, I think you saw, Jay uh, and, and Trevor, you should know that people are starting to write in with questions about wanting to know how, how Jay did it, or, or you, for that matter. Like, hey, how did you opened up an all-sour brewery. What was that like? What was right. your business plan like? Uh, so people out there are clearly considering what the logistics of having a sour program or even being an all-sour brewery are, are like. So I know I, I speak for them when I say thanks for you know being an open book. 
Oh yeah, man. Candidly, it's a it's a nightmare, as Jake can attest. <laughs> <laughs> sure, it is a long term project that you have to pay up front for, and you know it's really tough to you know we originally sought out uh, uh, traditional financing through through banks and such, uh, and nobody would touch a brewery that wasn't going to be profitable for a bare minimum of one year. Uh, I think we actually were able to break even just just a hair under that, which, you know, we, we had the most pessimistic business plan accounting for the fact that there was going to be some skepticism. But yeah, we couldn't get a traditional loan. Uh, Lindsay, you know, we refinanced to both of our vehicles. She took out as much uh, personal loans as she could. Uh, we threw all of our savings into it because that was the only option. And realistically, going into an all-sour brewer, unless you're doing kettle sours or something along that line, it's going to be really dicey. Uh, you have to either plan on having some quick turnaround beers to get traditional financing or have some other uh, source uh, of, of financing and credit. Well, and, and I don't know how much of this you, you, you guys ran into, but there isn't a lot of discretion happening with banking any longer with with business loans or, or even with home loans. Like, they just want to know now, I just need to see a payroll paycheck and I need to see your last six months of, of or your last uh, two years of tax returns, whatever. There's not, it's not like where you would go in and, and a banker would kind of look at your business plan and look and it's like the local busted whistle bank greater of the greater uh, Tri-County <laughs> Lettuce Belt area and the guy would actually just make a judgment call. There's no judgment calls anymore. Well, you know, maybe it's because of our location out here, but yeah, we, we definitely had judgment calls, and they said this oh, is did? way too optimistic. Uh, you oh. know, your financial projections are way too optimistic. You know, how are you going to sell all this? And you know, hell, at that point, we had a uh, letter of, of interest from a distributor. We had, I think, two dozen different accounts that had uh, written letters, which were saying that we'll carry every single bottle or keg that these guys can sell us, and still, uh, yeah, nothing. Well, I'm glad to hear that there was some discretion, even though it didn't go in your favor. But yeah. <laughs> so do, do you think the result might be different now? I mean, and I know it's only been a couple of few years here, but our, our sales aren't the problem that a lot of craft breweries are having. Is it? Isn't it uh, a supply issue? So it's like you, well, you need to prove that you're really going to make these sales. Really? Because sales is not the issue. Oh, I, yeah. I mean, you say it's only a couple of years, but what a what a couple of years. Yeah, exactly. So I guess it, w- it would be different now, wouldn't it? I mean, yeah, it's 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 a lot. I'd say it's a lot different for sour beer brewers. I mean, in our case, and uh, probably Trevor's too, you know, you start up, and I think he referenced this, you know, you don't make, we didn't sell a single thing except maybe like a T-shirt or two for the first nine months of being brewing. And like full expenses, full operation brewing. And then there was all the build-out before that, leasing of the space. There's so many expenses that come that are associated with time, and I think that's why sour beer gets so expensive is because, you know, you think of an IPA and a bomber and that's, you know, four or five bucks. Let's say it takes a month to turn out optimistically or, I mean, that's, even, that's conservative. That's conservative for sure. Um, you know, sour beer, let's say it takes, you know, nine times as long. Well, it's not nine times the cost, right? I mean, sour beer, it ages like a wine. It, it's, in, it's in wine barrels, which is a similar cost. You have to have the similar infrastructure. Um, you don't get that turnaround like an IPA. Um, and while hops are expensive, there's there's that cost of time, which is like I think the big unknown with people when it comes to beer pricing differences and, you know, people thinking that sour beer is too expensive. You know, I'm, you know, one of the more biased sources, but, you know, I think it could be more expensive when you compare it to wine. But, you know, there there's all sorts of variable pricing, and a lot of it has to do when it comes to beer that takes this long, as how you know how expensive your business is to run basically so 
I think uh, one, you know we mentioned how uh, Trevor, you've been good enough to to share some of these details with us. Um, something that I'm working on is trying to uh, to get a CBC panel going. Uh, how to basically how to start your own sour program, but like first steps, practical steps. And we submitted it last year. We didn't get it approved. There are a lot of good sour beer seminars last year, but that's something you know I'm I'm also really passionate about because there's so much interest right now that you know we have to we have to do this right. We have to nail this as an industry. We have to get you know we have so much collective knowledge and so much infrastructure to share that knowledge that you know no one. Sour beer is hard to make, but, you know, people should be making better sour beers overall as the industry gets more involved in sour beer. So, Hey, Jay, we're trying. <laughs> <laughs> Present company excluded. No, no, no. <laughs> Included for sure. I mean, the great part about what we do at the Roberto is we dump all our bad beer. So we, I mean, I know I've seen this from you too, Trevor. You build in dumping bad beer, you know, kind of into your forecast. And, you know, it's not that we'd never make bad beer. We make bad beer all the time. And sometimes in large volumes. I mean, uh, you should you should taste some of these beers. They're really bad, and the only ones that get released are the ones that are good enough, you know, up to our standards. So I'm sure I'm sure it's the same for you, Trevor. Yeah, I think any reputable brewery puts out a beer that they think the consumer base is going to enjoy, and if it's not something that's going to be enjoyable, you you toss it. I think we can all agree on that. Beer with off character isn't even a blending component. That you blend that with a drain. Absolutely. What, what do you think the, uh, the for, from both of you, the percentage breakdown of barrels that get dumped versus barrels that are good to go? From from our brewery? For, let's let's start with Rare Barrel. Unfortunately, it's higher than I would have liked. If I had to go percentage, over 10, over 10%. So it's like uh, one in 10 barrels is a dump? Maybe two? I'd say so. Wow. Yeah. What about you, Trevor? You know, it's uh, tough to say at this point. We have probably either set aside or dumped somewhere close to 15%. Man. But realistically, you know, some of the off characters we find in beers have a tendency to be rectified during the long-term aging uh, and Brettanomyces activity. If it's aggressively acetic, then, you know, that's just, that's a goner. So, you know, in a year or two, I could probably give you a better example of stuff that we've been sitting on for two or three years that we eventually give up on will give us a, a more accurate number. But I'm suspecting somewhere in line with what uh, what Jay's saying. So the, the jury's still out on if some of it is if it's going to be dumpable or not? Yeah. We've, you know, we've had stuff that threw massive, uh, you know, butyric or isoflaric character early on that you'd expect to be metabolized uh, earlier, you know, in, er, around the year mark generally is where we start seeing a cleanup of some of that stuff uh, in the more aggressive batches of it. Sometimes that doesn't happen, though, and then it's just a waiting game. Does it ever Yep, Sul- sulfur, diacetyl, same same sort of problems depending on the type of sulfur. Yeah. But yeah, you you got to hold barrels, you got to dump other barrels. Um, yeah. And I guess and we, we, but, we actually see also, uh, you know, the the reconditioning in bottles is is one of the most fragile states. So, you know, we've got I don't know how many thousands of bottles right now going that that may end up having to be dumped, and we eat the cost of the the glass oh, on yeah. top of the beer just oh, because yeah. they've uh, thrown off character in there that likely never will clear up. Do you guys think that? Over time, there can be a refinement of your pro- – not that your process is to blame, but your process such that the number will go down to maybe 0. 0.5 in 10? Or do you think the sort of 1 in 10 mark is just the nature of wild beer? I, I think for us, it's it's not just the nature of wild beer, but our, our approach. It's inherent in our approach that we're going to fail because we're trying new experiments all the time. We have We have experiments that work. We have – you know, one of our tools that I've referenced on the show, a fermentation that I love, 
is our Brett Lacto primary fermentation. That makes a killer beer. It's pretty much free from off flavors if we treat it a certain way, and it makes a really nice sour beer. Consistent, you can blend it, you can build secondary ingredients off of it. Really love that beer. But we're not done. You know, we're going to continue to develop new beers all the time, new processes, new barrels, new pieces of equipment, new ingredients to use. And so inherent in our process, I think, is this knowledge that we are going to fail. And, you know, we're on the edge. We're trying to experiment. So the fact that 85% of our beer is good enough to call it rare barrel beer, I think is actually quite an achievement because we're using so many ingredients that shouldn't make beer that tastes good. And I'm sure, you know, Trevor feels the same way. His process is a wild process, and there's only so much you can control. So, you know, I'm sure you're expecting some some beer you're going to have to dump in the future. Sure. And, you know, we see that where we think we've got our process uh, pretty well dialed in, although we are always looking for new ways to do things. Uh, we'll have, you know, 90% of, of uh, a particular process work out great, and then you have either between a barrel flaw or, you know, Britannomyces deciding to flex his ugly muscle uh, later on in fermentation, something that goes off that really there's no good solution for. Uh, you know, you can't necessarily uh, know before you put beer into a barrel what the uh, oxygen permeability of a barrel is. Uh, you know, you can treat it so that it's not going to have gaps between the staves and such, but you can't know that that's going to be perfectly done. In the same way, we can use the same process for inoculating our beer in the cool ship but you don't know what metabolic pathways the Britannomyces is going to open up uh, during a year, two years, or three years of aging, and it may decide to start throwing, you know, four vinyl phenol like some funky shit that doesn't show up in any other batch or any other barrel brewed at the same time or in the same method. Yeah, I mean, it's it's a wild world out there, and that, but that's that's the path we chose. You know, we're we're making beer that it's unknown. You know, we're, we're basically taking stuff that's supposed to make beer bad and trying to make good beer out of it. And, and oh, it's stuff that was supposed to make good beer, and then people found other ways to do yeah. it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. That's a great way to look at it. Um, all right. Well, I'll get, get us to a break. Uh, Trevor, hopefully we, you can hang on for, for one more segment. I think I, I owe it to the people who wrote in with all the questions. i got to ask you about your Berliners versus uh, kind of the Lambic-inspired beer. So let's, uh, let's get to that after a real— I don't know. Trevor's rider was pretty specific. He wanted no, peanut M and M's. No, no brown M and M's. Oh, his said your said no brown. He only specified peanut for me. Oh, okay. Yeah, but and but more importantly, and it was underlined, bolded, and italicized. No questions about Berliner. Are you I are you willing? Wrong. I was calling you peanut, and I only wanted brown M's. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So if you're willing, Trevor, we'll hang around for one more segment and get into uh, kind of the styles of beer that you make at Degard. Sound good? Yeah, we're good. All right, we'll take a quick break and be back on the Sour Hour. Have you ever dreamed of attending the World Brewing Academy? This year, thanks to Lalamond and Danstar, one lucky brewer will make that dream a reality for free. Lalamond and Danstar invite you to enter the Beer School 2016 contest. One lucky grand prize winner will receive fully paid tuition to the 2016 World Brewing Academy web-based concise course in brewing technology worth almost $4,000. From now until December 11th, 
2015, every Danstar Yeast packet you use is your ticket to enter. Visit DanstarYeast.com for the details and to print your official entry form. There's no limit on the number of times you can enter, so get brewing with Danstar and get your entries into the Danstar 2016 Beer School Contest. Whether you want to build your home brewing skills or build a career as a professional brewer, this course will change the way you think of beer and brewing. Enter at DanstarYeast.com and get the dry yeast advantage with Lalamond and Danstar Premium Brewing Yeast and enter to win. Hey, my brewing brothers and sisters, this is Jamel Zanisha, and I love a bold, hoppy beer, one that spits resin in your face and makes you cry, Uncle. There are a lot of great hoppy beers out there, but at Heretic, we want to make something as bold, dank, and resiny as possible. We use hops at every chance we get, including multiple dry hop additions. The result is Heretic Evil Cousin. This light golden, 8% Imperial IPA has an easy malt character that helps take the edge off the massive bittering, but it takes a back seat to the in-your-face hop character. We make sure this beer finishes dry so the hops can jump out and slam me in the taste buds. If you can't get enough hoppy goodness, Evil Cousin is your cup of tea. Cheers. This is Vinny at Russian River Brewing Company. I'm getting funky on the Sour Hour on the Brewing Network. Oh, yeah. Love those. We're back. Trevor, head brewer of Degar Brewing, is with us. We're having his amazing beers. Uh, Trevor, we're going to keep you one more segment, and i got a lot to get to. So I just want to dive right in to one of the big topics that we got asked about and you kind of had a strong opinion about, which is sort of your Berliner-style beers versus your Lambic-inspired beers. Um, maybe first off, you can just kind of tell us a little bit about what the what the process difference is for you guys of those two. Is it the same inoculant? They're just aged different times? I know the recipe is different. Um, can you kind of walk us through the the difference between those two beers? I don't know if you could get more different in the production uh, capacity as far as what we do. Um, it's still naturally inoculated uh, the same way. But basically, we, uh, during the process, reheat our, our uh, Berliner recipes and our Goza recipes back up to 110 degrees and hold those hot uh, in stainless for about 48 hours. So basically, we're encouraging the, uh, the truly wild uh, lactobacillus to... Uh, propagate the wort and do an early clean lactic fermentation. Uh, and I say clean, but that's not necessarily the best way to put it. It's still a funky process. Uh, and Jared, who's sitting here with me now, can definitely attest to that being pretty nasty uh, after about 24 hours. Uh, before we, then we run it into barrels. Uh, that During the natural cooling, uh, sack kind of picks up the, the, the pieces, uh, followed by Britannomyces. Uh, so Effectively, uh, I mean, I guess you'd call it a, a, a improvised uh, tank sour. I, I don't know if there's a better way to put it, um, but encouraging uh, natural lacto to have an early lead um, and still trying to restrain that to some extent and more and more uh, currently uh, to try and uh, keep that pH a bit higher. 
versus the the uh, lambic inspired stuff, where we really just uh, uh, give it the food, give it the hops uh, to try and, and target a approximate pH and let it do its thing over uh, years. We we started doing the Berliner and the Goza series uh, out of necessity for quicker turnaround beers, um, and we've gotten that down where it's about three months in oak, uh, and then you know anywhere from uh, two weeks to to two months uh, conditioning. Uh, and as we've grown, we're leaning more towards producing uh, more of the Lambic-inspired stuff, more of the a little bit more uh, uh, historic uh, saisonny or farmhousey stuff, uh, the stuff that we're really more passionate about, and slowly phasing out the Berliner and Goza uh, aspects. Uh, and I think in the in the next year, we will have just the occasional release of them because it's really not where our heart is. Uh, there's breweries that make really cleanly lactic and fruit forward sour beers uh and they're probably better capable of doing it than we are we crave depth funk and and nuance versus just sour and fruit gotcha so if i could maybe um kind of crystallize the difference besides the the base recipe if i'm hearing you right the berliner it does see the cool ship but then is it post cool ship it comes back to the kettle and it sits at 110 and then gets knocked out yeah you're correct on that account uh so keeping it at 110 and holding it there for approximately 48 hours. Um, we have the difference to mash temperatures is a huge play there. We mash our Berliner and Gozas at 150 so and for a longer period of time. So we make a fairly fermentable wort. Uh, so it's a quicker fermentation timeline. And, and again, the goal on that was to have a, a, a faster turnaround beer because we had to pay bills when we were, you know, living do- uh, dime to dime. Mm-hmm. Uh, the backstory on the broken truck, the name of that was because uh, back when we were early on distributing, we had our truck break down with our, I think, second load of kegs going to our distributor. And we had, I think, literally $47 in our bank account. Uh, <laughs> and uh, fortunately, our, our newfound friends at Tin Bucket bought the entire truckload of kegs because our distributor was closed by the time we were able to get uh, everything sorted. Uh, and it was during the summertime in Portland. Uh, we would have been out of business. Uh, so we made their anniversary beer, and thank you, uh, and hence the broken truck. Awesome. That's a, that's a great story. Um, la- all right, I promise. Last question about the Berliner. So what you're saying is <laughs> you're phasing it out, and so if I'm, you know, Johnny Beer Geek out there, I'm starting to hoard all these Berliners because soon they're going to be, you know, just every once in a while, and then, you know, I'll have all the super – rare exclusive Degard brewing beers is that am i am i hearing that right phasing it down we'll definitely still do probably a handful of batches a year uh so it'll never be gone because there's there's demand for that and we want to make customers happy as much as we want to to do what we want to do um but i definitely wouldn't encourage people to save them or hoard them uh you know, it doesn't have that, the, the depth of Britannomyces character to ensure a, a, a long, happy aging process. I, I think they're a beer that should be consumed fresh uh, for the vibrant fruit character and the, the clean lactic character. Well, good. I'm, glad, I'm glad you said that. I was mostly setting you up to be able to say that because, you know, I, you know, I think people hear that, okay, you're going to scale down production of the Berliner. But, it's you know, to be honest, for maybe people who don't know, their Berliner beers are, like, incredibly popular. They're, like, all over the beer writing websites, top lists of best Berliners, and they put all this different fruit in there, and it's just they're, they're amazing beers on their own. But I can totally appreciate where you guys are coming from, that 
the beers that you're you know most proud of and working the hardest on and been waiting the longest for and really maybe you feel like is the most representative of what DeGard is all about are these ones that are coming out now. Yeah. Well, I mean, hey, man, you know, you, you as well as us got into this to, uh, to make the beer you want to make. I think we all have to make sacrifices on the way. And for us, uh, making a higher percentage of Berliners and, and, and such was part of it. Uh, we still love the beers. We still drink them uh, and enjoy them. But it's really not where our heart is. And, you know, unfortunately, we have to, to meld our desires with uh, our customers' desires. And that means that we'll make less, but we will still make them. But I think that the vast majority of consumers will be really happy with the uh, upcoming uh, and, and very near future uh, beers that we'll be putting out in higher volume. Absolutely. These beers that we're drinking right now, and thank you for setting me up for that, they are amazing. The next thing I want to ask you about are the two beers we have open in front of us, which is the Lee Creek and the uh, Chat Dior. Am I pronouncing those correctly? Uh, my wife would probably correct mine, but I believe it's a Chat Dior. Chat <laughs> Dior. All right. So can you uh, tell us a little bit about these two? Maybe let's... Uh, Start with the Chuck Dior. <laughs> yeah, uh, that one is a uh, probably a hodgepodge for better for better uh, description. Uh, we've got some Genevieve gin barrels. Uh, we've got, uh, I believe, some bourbon, some rye rye heavy bourbon in there, uh, and some wine Chardonnay, if I'm not mistaken. Um, kind of culling some of the barrel influence from each of them, uh, different ages to get different character, but really, it's a, a higher gravity. Uh, and a little bit more barrel influence than most of our sours, um, but kind of a, the the fall sipping sour. It's another amazing integration of you know kind of barrels you don't see commonly. Yeah. But you're you're I, I can tell you have a, a really a deft touch when it comes to blending because the gin. I mean, we we were sipping on this before we knew uh, that that was part of the beer, and it's so seamlessly integrated that yeah. it just seems like depth of character more than hitting you over the head with, hey, this is the barrel that it was in. Yeah, and we like that. You know, the, the Ginevere barrels were a little bit uh, uh, oak and, and, and gin spice heavy. And so, you know, we we'd originally thought that these would probably make a great composition. And I think a lot of people would have absolutely loved it as a sole, uh, uh, a sole uh, composition of those those particular recipes and barrels. Um, but we decided that we personally liked the little interplay between the Chardonnay, giving it kind of that lush mouthfeel and softness, and the uh, the rye bourbon adding a little bit uh, different spice and uh, oak richness to to give it some layers. Nice, yeah, it's it's a beautiful beer, and again, seamlessly integrated. Um, when it comes to the the Lee Creek, um, can you tell us a little bit about that beer? Maybe maybe focusing on a, a topic that a lot of people were writing us about, which was uh, your your fruiting. You know, the source of the fruit, the amounts you put in. How how do you handle uh, your fruit beers? Um, yeah. Um, that particular one, uh, Montmorency cherries. Uh, so sour red beer, uh, Lee based recipes. One we played with before, we've tweaked it, uh, uh, a little bit in the more recent iterations, uh, to try and again, restrain that acidity a bit and make it more, uh, palatable. But to the fruit aspect, uh, we typically start at about two pounds per gallon with exceptions for, uh, more aggressive fruits like currants, uh, cranberries, where I think even at one pound per gallon, they can be a bit over the top. And then moving all the way up to for stuff like peaches, occasionally hitting that four pound per gallon mark. Wow. And yeah, we're kind of 
we spend a lot of money on fruit. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, And, and, you know, we, we kind of draw a lot of our inspiration from uh, the, the Belgian Lambic producers. Uh, I don't, you know, I think most of our stuff isn't too far out of line. We've gone a bit heavier on the peach versus, I think, the the traditional levels for that because the Oregon peaches we work with are fairly subdued in character, which is one of the ones that we generally get closer to that four pound per gallon. Um, if you want peach character, you just really have to go higher. And I think probably one of the, the questions you've had is, you know, where we get our fruit from, and there's multiple different answers to that Uh I think like you guys uh, and uh, a, a few of the noted California producers of fruit beer, we do occasionally work with Oregon fruit uh, products or fruit purees. Mm-hmm. Um, it's high-quality product. Um, I, I don't think, in, in my personal opinion, that it's quite as good as fresh, which we prefer to work with, but we're really seasonally constrained in Oregon. Uh, so if we have a batch of uh, boo that's crying out for some raspberries that we really want to throw some raspberries into, then we don't have a lot of options. Uh, so we, we, we work with Oregon fruit uh, products, particularly for the boo series. Uh, and we bring in as much fresh as we can uh, during the, the peak season. And, you know, you mentioned your, your focus on local ingredients. I'm actually wondering, and we got a couple of questions about this, what, what's your water like there? And how, how do you, do you do any treatments to kind of, uh, maximize the potential for sour beer or, you know, what, what's your relationship with the water that you use? You can't get much more uh, uh, mineral deficient than what we have here. It's basically distilled water almost. You know, we're pulling from a fresh runoff. Uh, the, the water treatment in our area or the water supply in our area is very localized to where we're brewing. It's a, a, the port of Tillamook Bay. Where we're brewing at has their own supply. We don't treat for the vast majority of our recipes, again, because we, we do want uh, most of what we make to be a very authentic uh, a representation of where we're brewing. Uh, same reason we use, uh, you know, 90% or 95% all Northwest grown and malted uh, grain, uh, you know, almost all uh, Northwest barrels, et cetera, um, and, of course, local yeast and bacteria. But that said, for some of the, the more uh, hop-centric beers or ones that have uh, a bit more uh, hop and malt character, like our, our again, historic uh, Saison-inspired recipes, we'll add some really basic water treatment, you know, gypsum, calcium chloride, uh, but in nominal amounts. Still, I think we're far below what most people uh, consider a, an appropriate amount. Yeah, there's, uh, there's actually a... Great system product that uh, you, home brewer, can use if uh, you want to see if you can go into Degard territory and not have to treat your water for most of your recipes, or you do have to treat your water for a lot of your recipes, which I, I think is the majority of you. It's called the iDip. If you go to uh, smartbrewkit.com, uh, you can uh, use this awesome, you don't even need to do maths. Is this the thing that uh, Nate was talking about yeah. using on the session? Exactly. Same product. Oh, okay. Yep. So uh, it's the only meter on the market, runs water tests with no. No math needed, which makes me immediately be in love with it. It's a handheld water tester. It's got an app. It pairs via Bluetooth. It updates your water results instantly to your own water profile. I mean, you really can dial in uh, your water to the uh, one millionth of a of a part per millionth. Wow. Sign the, me up. The millionth to the millionth. Yeah, <laughs> smartbrewkit.com. Enter uh, code TBN15, and you'll receive a free shipping uh, plus a bottle of reagent for free. It's a $70 value. And uh, support those who uh, support these shows and uh, test use the most awesomest product that was ever developed for water treatment while you're at it. Yeah. Yeah. I want to go to that. Smartbrewkit.com. Awesome. 
Yeah, I gotta either steal Nate's or get one for myself. It's really cool. That man, I'm telling you, the, the, we're talking about the last two years and how much has changed between just 2013 and 2015. Mm-hmm. The amount of products that just did not exist three years ago that do now that can help you just make great beer yeah. right from the get go. You don't need to have experience. That's killer. You just go buy lots of cool things. Water's so complicated. Yeah, I try to read the water book, which I recommend everyone get. But I mean, I get a couple of pages in and then I'm. I'm snoozing. I, right. I, I need someone to read it's it so to me who, who knows what they're talking about. Yeah, you but. need to get it on audiobook as read by, like, Tony Robbins. Well, and listen, then maybe you can... You know, I listen to, like, the, the Bruce Strong show or where uh, John is, you know, discussing all of it. And even then, I'm like, man, I need need him to further explain this. Like, like I'm a second grader, basically. Right. I'm not, I'm not very scientific. Beardy Just, has said more than one... I think he's reading that book for the second or third time, and he's like, every time I'm... I learned something new because I'm not sure I'm really absorbing much. (laughs) I'm sure, yeah, it's going to be that thing where your eyes scan, like you, you, you read the paragraph, but you didn't absorb any of it. This is your eyes went over the words, but you didn't. Beardy can read? (laughs) It's 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 using a magnifying glass, right? Okay. Yeah. Or it's like, it's actually like a jeweler's loop on both eyes. I'll ask him what he's learned and then I can take that knowledge and run. Um, or, or you can just go to smartbrewkit.com and use the iDip. There you go. Hey, you, the iDip, the Pico Brew, it's just, it does it all for you now. Really? What, what are you even doing? I, I, I'm not doing anything. I'm just <laughs> talking to Trevor about his awesome beer. Uh, all right, Trevor, we got to get, get you out of here soon. i got a couple more questions for you, and then I'll wrap, wrap it up. One of my favorites, and I'd love to get your take on it, is what do you think the biggest mistake in sour beer making it is? Huh. Uh, I love counting, by the way, while you're thinking about your answer, Trevor. I love counting the Mississippis in between when you finish asking the question and when our various guests have finally thought of an answer. Because it always <laughs> it always takes a pause for people to be like, huh. I, I feel good. I feel like that's, uh, that's a good question. It is. It's a great question. Or, or a terrible one. <laughs> yeah, it is a great question. I'll be honest. Jay had uh, uh, give me some, given me some uh, potential questions that I might expect. And I think that might have been one, but I really didn't read them. So uh, <laughs> all that hard work, good due diligence, Trevor. <laughs> well, you know, we were filling barrels and stuff. So of course happening here. Uh, I, I think that um, the biggest mistake maybe from a home brewer, hell, probably even a commercial brewery standpoint is, is thinking that uh, a particular brewery or somebody like myself has, has the, the answer or the authentic answer method to making sour beer. I mean, you can witness by, you know, what, what Jay's doing at rare barrel, uh, you know what? What uh, Russian River is doing? What? What any number of dozens of breweries around the country, or, or hundreds around the world, most likely at this point, are doing? Uh, that there isn't one method to make really damn good wild beer. And I think what people have to 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 realize is that they need to find the way to make the best beer that they can, and the best process is to make that beer. And a lot of times that's going to be location dependent. Uh, but realistically, it, it is what works for you, and, and trial and error are really what what pay off. That's an awesome answer. And it's it's very appropriate and authentic to DeGuard because, you know, what you guys are doing there is, is so much about local and, you know, developing your own process. Sure, you know, you're inspired by the Belgian Lambic producers and, you know, to a certain extent, uh, the Berliner style of beer. But, you know, what you're doing is taking it in a new direction. I think that's that's an excellent piece of advice for brewers is that, you know, go ahead, listen to the show, read the American Sour book, do what you're going to do, but don't take it as the gospel. You know, you're you're going to have to adjust on the fly to your what you're tasting, what you're seeing, 
And, you know, that that's what makes uh, takes a good brewer to a great brewer, I think. So. Yeah. Well, and what you what you want to make, what your tastes are, like, you know, where you want your beer to be. You know, I, 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 I our beer is is obviously no no better than than what you're doing. And hopefully most people won't think too much worse than what you're doing. Uh, but, you know, as you know, we have drastically different production methods. Uh, and, you know, you, you can't pigeonhole sour beer and say this is how you make a great one. Uh, and I think that that's an important thing for, for uh, home brewers and, and, and yeah, like I said, potentially even commercial brewers to know. You have to figure out what works for you to make the best beer you can and the one that meets your taste. I, I think that's that's dead on. And, you know, there's so much going around in sour beer now that, you know, it is it's a widespread style. And, you know, what you guys are doing are is, is so inspirational and you know, once once I know more about what I'm doing, I hope to do something like what you guys are doing there. But yeah, like that, once that you is... once you sweep the American sour category, the the two out of three is <laughs> not cutting it as a no, no, that's enough of that. But I'm serious. You know what I think? What Trevor is doing is I'm intimidated by that, but he's gone. You know, all in on it, and he's really executing. I mean, these beers. How good were these beers we had tonight? Though? Everyone was an A plus. Yeah, M- mind blowing beer. They were awesome. Really, really amazing. And the ones you know, we've had some of the Berliners that were awesome too, and some of the you know that he's doing. We didn't even get into dry hopping, Trevor. We got to have you back for you know a billion more questions. Yeah, but... you got to come down to the studio actually. Hey, yeah. we're the cops. <laughs> awesome. Well, maybe I'll I'll get you out on this uh, very last question uh, since we're making you know so many of the millions and perhaps even billions of people listening live right now jealous that we're drinking your beer uh where can people find your beer ebay <laughs> hey can you reach over and slap him <laughs> <laughs> i don't even think i'm right i'm just making a you know i, no, I knew uh, i would push your buttons you know for for better or worse uh 90 i, I think 96 percent of our sales happen out of our tap room uh, in bottle and draft format um we are working on slowly increasing uh, as our fooders mature, sending a little bit into distribution around uh, Oregon and Washington, and, and that's going to be your daily drinker price level stuff for the most part. You know the the, the five, six, seven dollar, seven hundred and fifty milliliter bottles. Um, so better beer stores in Oregon and Washington on an irregular basis, and we're doing a pretty damn good job having some bottles available all the time, and usually uh, three, four, five, twelve uh, available at our. Uh, our tap room here in Tillamook, uh, which is very conveniently located in the middle of nowhere. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, thank you for mentioning that. I was just realizing as you know we're wrapping up, I'm like, I don't think I said they're in Tillamook, but uh, I'm glad. We have, we have cheese, clams, and ocean breeze. There you go. How, yeah, how, you guys are pretty close to the ocean there, aren't you? Yeah, we're uh, just a, a few miles inland. Uh, we're right on, or right, well, our brewery is right off of Highway 101, the Coast Highway. But if you take the the detour uh, three or four miles west, uh, you've got Neatarts, where my wife and I live, uh, which is right on the coast. Nice. I, th- I just saw there's like this map that just came out with like hot spots, and you can do like the whole country brewery tour in like kind of a reasonable amount of days. Yeah, yeah and, I think it was 18 days, right? Yeah, I'm sure. I, I'm pretty sure I saw Degard on there. And I was yeah, like, Degard's yeah, like on there. there. The rare barrels on there too, isn't it? Uh, no, no, I, you no, guys didn't make so. the cut. Oh man, <laughs> Degard was definitely there. Well, that's how you know they know what they're that's talking about. Because there's nowhere else on the coast to, within probably 50 miles north or south to go to, so they had to throw us in the middle. Right, I'm sure it was yeah. just because there were no other options. <laughs> well, hey, wait, wait, I know we're gonna we're trying to let you go and forgive me, I, but uh, as it pertains to GABF, I thought about it when I was saying when is Jake going to sweep the category? Did you enter beers? No, we, we haven't. We probably won't. Because why? You know. It, 
We haven't spent a dollar on marketing since we started brewing the, uh, uh, beer here, and we have to look at uh, GABF entries or any competition entries as marketing dollars. Uh, and I guess you could count my time here on this show as potentially marketing dollars in time, but oh, you know, yeah. we don't really pay ourselves enough. Like It probably cost me 50 cents. Don't uh, buy DeGard <laughs> beers. They suck. There, is that better? Uh, now it's uh, not marketing. It, it's If we win, that might have some nominal increase in demand. Um, we already can't meet demand, so why would we try and make it harder for the people that are already coming out to have access to our beer? As Lindsay likes to point out, I probably have too much ego already, and really that would be the one benefit from winning anything. <laughs> well, I mean, yeah, Jay's I, head barely fit through the door when he was trying to get into the studio today. Oh, <laughs> uh, you're telling me. But I mean, you know, you know your beers are world class, and you know, I think we talked to uh, Tim from Sante about this when he was on the show. You know, they don't enter their beers either. You know, sim- similar reasons, and you know, I think as a brewer, you taste your beer against other people's beer, and you have the most critical palate, the most you know critical nose for your beers, and you, you know when yours stack up. I mean, true, they're very different, but you know, Degard makes world class beers. It's a reason people were begging us to get Trevor on the show. There's a reason, you know, these beers. Even though they're spread, even though they're only sold 95% of their tap room, they're spread, you know, through the black market all over the country and people are trying them and loving them. They're, there's a reason for all this. And it's because they make gold medal level beer, whether they enter a competition or not. Sure. Matter. Of course. And I, palette, um, palette objectivity always fascinates me. And forgive me, Trevor, because this is the 26th, the last question. But do you, <laughs> how, how collaborative is the blending process? You're doing it mostly on your own? You got people helping you? I'd like to say a reserve veto power, but I have been outvoted before. But uh, we, we do try and involve everybody in our brewery. You know, I, I mentioned uh, uh, Mark Pearson and Jared Allison, uh, to our two assistant brewers, uh, who have amazing palates and have helped this brewery get better and better. Um, but Lindsay is probably has the most nuanced palate of any woman I've ever met or any person I've ever met. Uh, and Sierra in our tap room and Aaron. So we all pitch in and taste through stuff uh, on occasion. Like I said, I, I try to have the final say, but I'm wrong as often as I'm right. So sometimes it's really nice to have two or three or five other people to tell you when you're wrong. Absolutely. Another sign of a great blender right there, in my humble opinion. I think that's the way you have to do it. you got to take you know, as much experience as you have tasting. you got to take that out of it and recognize that it's not always about experience, about people have different thresholds for perceiving different things. And if you're not using everybody, you know, you're, yeah. just, you're just not maximizing the team tasting aspect that you could. So I really respect you that, you know, you can involve other people and also be out, you know, outvoted. I think that's really important too. Yeah. And you guys are as aware as I am that you can have off palate days and things that might taste great, uh, really aren't, or that might taste bad really are. But I do have to throw the, uh, the, the thing out there are, um, he helps make sure the tapper is running fantastically as well as making sure we have bottles ready to sell. Uh, Aaron Bean, um, he has, and we've actually proven this, uh, the best fantasy football team ever, which I feel like is a real vital uh, mm. contribution to our blending operation. <laughs> yeah, I mean, no wonder you can keep your prices at five bucks a bottle. You're winning tons of money on uh, DraftKings. <laughs> hey, we, we hired the guy for a reason. <laughs> okay, well, I'll, I'm, I'm starting in my mind to build a Brewers Fantasy Football League from all over the country. I've got a few people in mind who I've, Dinner, you know, a little bit of a pre-interview with, and they know their stuff. So I'll uh, I'll put you guys on the potential list. Oh, are you talking about brewers who can help you pick a good fantasy no, no, team or the, the fantasy brewer team? 
Because on that team, like you, you would draft Trevor from the guard. You yeah, would yeah. draft Jay from the rare barrel. No, no, no. That's a bad pick. <laughs> Way overrated for the second round. Come on. No, no. I mean, the results of, the results of late are an, an anomaly. Is that what you're saying? Yes. Okay. All right. Well, Trevor, I'll hit you up about that fantasy football thing. But we got to get you out of here because we could go four hours, honestly. We got to get you back on the show sometime. But honestly, thank you so much for all the beers and all of your time. We really appreciate it. And I know the... All the people listening are going to appreciate all of your uh, your insight on your process. So thank you. Hey man. Uh, authentically, thank you for having me. I always love talk, talking beer, and we never, ever expected to be on a show like this. So I'm flattered as hell. Thanks. Awesome. Well, thanks for coming on, Trevor. And uh, are, you, are you going out to uh, Philly for CBC? Uh, That's a no. That? Maybe. That's a, <laughs> That's a, uh, what, a wholehearted that? Uh, no. May, May or something like that? Uh, is is it during the uh, the Copenhagen beer celebration? Two, two weeks before that. Fuck, that might be tough, man. We we're, have we're a gonna, travel budget because we charge four dollars for our beer. Well, we're going May, to May three through six. We're going to Copenhagen too, so let's fly out together to Philly and then fly together to Copenhagen. Well, the one thing I can promise is that high fives will happen at one or both locations. Well, then I'll we'll see you in Copenhagen, there. I guess, right? <laughs> Yeah, definitely Copenhagen. That is such an entourage line right there. It's like, hey, bro, I'll see you in Copenhagen. <laughs> uh, yeah, exactly. I'm picturing both of you flying private, of course. Yeah. Did you Egg- run the yacht yet? Oh, oh, I thought you were getting the yacht. <laughs> man, man. That's a, you're selling a lot of $5 bottles because of renting yachts. <laughs> telling no, you. No, Something no. about these economics does not make sense. You know, you they, know what? Is, is Degard just an elaborate a laundering operation? I know you can't say mm. whether or not it is on the air, but I'm floating that as a theory. Just, just be silent if, if it is. We launder a lot of uh, uh, bovine uh, uh, characters. <laughs> We're in cow country here, sir. <laughs> All right. All right, Trevor. i got to cut you off. Thanks so much for being with us. And, uh, again, really appreciate it. And that was great. we got to get you back on. Hey, my pleasure. Have a good one, guys. Cheers, right. dude. Wow. Man. Good beers. Awesome show. We, we easily could have gone four hours. Yeah, we could. Half my list of questions that I didn't even get to. Well, we still got we got a few more minutes. Let's take one more break and then uh, do one last thing here before we get out. We can get to a couple questions, I think. Yep, we'll answer some questions in the last segment, and then, uh, yeah, we'll get out of here and drink the rest of the DeGard beer. We'll be right back on the Sour Hour. Three-time Ninkasi Award winner and Grandmaster Judge Gordon Strong invites you on a guided journey of what's new in the world of homebrewing. Modern homebrew recipes, exploring styles and contemporary techniques available now from Brewers Publications. Gordon brings you specific advice and sensory profiles for as-brewed, award-winning beers with delicious variations to get your creative juices flowing. This is more than just a book of recipes. It sets brewers on the path to discovering what's new in the world of homebrewing. AHA director Gary Glass says if you want to enter competitions or just learn more about styles that you might not have experience with, this book is going to help you tremendously. By emulating what Gordon does, you're going to make better beer. Modern homebrew recipes, exploring styles and contemporary techniques by Gordon Strong. Available right now from BrewersPublications.com and find brewing retailers near you. Last segment, part two. Usually by this time I'd be, you know, a little worn down. You know, it's a long two shows, but all jacked up from that great interview with uh, Trevor. I thought that went really well. Lots of great information. 
I, I thought it was the the coffee you were mainlining uh, before the show. No, no, no. Because I oh, don't drink interview? coffee. You know, I, I have a five o'clock cutoff. Ah, I see. As you know, you've known this about me for a long time. I have. Well, I was wondering why you were drinking it so quickly. I thought you were just uh, really jacked for the interview, which I, you were, but yeah, it was I unrelated. Was. I was. Yeah. But that was great. Uh, and seriously, could, can easily have him back for another two hours. Uh, and, you know, now that he's not, not here, I can tell the honest truth about his beers. They're even better than what we said. Yeah, they are. Yeah, I said A plus, great. but that just accounts for the scale of F to A. Mm-hmm. But there's really no there are, there is no mark for what his beers are. We've been lucky enough to have quite a few of the Degard beers at uh, the Rare Barrel in our uh, sour beer fridge, and I mean, man, they just killing it all the time. Their their Boo series, the Berliners that we were referencing, we we they have a whole series of Gozes dry and then dry hop Gozes that we didn't even get into. So amazing stuff if you can get. Your hands on their beer, definitely do it. Um, I, I do like that, by the way, about the uh, craft beer and the, the the sort of beer nerd and beer trading scene. There's some beer that is really really hyped and doesn't live up to it. But I think and the what beer is that Scott. I'm just joking. without naming names, of course. <laughs> I know, I know. I hate making generalities without examples, but I don't want to, you know, alienate anybody. But I would even say most of the beer. It's one man's opinion, but m- most of the beer that's really really hyped is worth the hype. Like you read, mm-hmm. you know, you hear people talking about Degard, and it, they just start falling all over themselves for it. And but it's for good reason. I, yeah, I think the 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 beer drinker, the beer connoisseur of today is much more sophisticated. So that you know, if you maybe some things can be you know overhyped, and you know some some beers are just not worth you know for me, like a beer is not worth waiting in line for an hour or something like that. Um, so th- th- there's there's little you can do about something like that. But, you know, I think people are much more sophisticated today in their beer drinking. And so, you know, if you follow the crowd, I think you're following the crowd to a good beer, basically. Yeah, totally. But then there's, you know, a billion other great beers that don't get hype. Of course. It, they're just amazing. Don't rely only on hype, but don't assume right. hype is overblown. Yeah, don't don't always believe the hype, but sometimes do. Right. That's confusing. <laughs> <laughs> Um, you know what's uh, you know what's hyped a lot. Another one of those examples of something that is hyped that lives up to its hype. Wine and Hop Shop nailed it. Wineandhop.com. and they have super hypey ingredients. Not hyphy, hyphy. <laughs> no one wants hyphy. <laughs> Which are uh, Omega Yeast Labs, uh, you know, lactose strains and cool breaths and blends and cool Saccharomyces and Giga Yeast. You know, we've talked a lot about these small yeast labs on the show. Well, this is where you can get them. Wineandhop.com. Enter BN shipping in the notes field, and uh, you'll get a discount, which is going to be uh, a flat $8 shipping rate for items under how many pounds, Scott? 50. 50 is correct. Yeah. And most items are going to ship within how many hours? 24? That's correct. Yes. Yeah. I thought you were going to say 26 for a second, but then you pulled it out. 26. <laughs> Come on. What do you take me for? Uh, we really appreciate the Wine and Hop Shop for sponsoring the Sour Hour. You know, it keeps the, the train running on the tracks and on time, so... Thank you very much to the Wine and Hop Shop, and go support our sponsor there. So while we're uh, running down the show, we're going to answer some questions now. Let's which, try and get through a couple, yes. Speaking of sponsors, these questions are sponsored by Sour Beer Blog. I'm really glad we got to mention them actually in part one because, as Trevor was saying, he's starting to adjust his kind of like two- or three-year-out uh, Lambic-inspired beer, and he's putting in more uh, aged hops. And uh, Matt, Dr. Lambic, goes into... Uh, that aspect of sour beer making in his article about tannins. He's also got a new article about uh, carbonation. And it's such an 
underrated part of sour beer making is that these things impact the mouthfeel. And when you're dealing with acidity, which can really impact mouthfeel, and in some cases, some beers that are not made with Saccharomyces, um, that'll affect the mouthfeel too. You really want to know as much as possible about building and mouthfeel. Because, I mean, the worst thing you can do is make a beer that's going to take you three years, and then it comes out, you know, like a flabby mess at the end. No one wants wants to come out like a flabby mess. <laughs> Be able to sugar head feverishly. <laughs> I thought no, that might get a reaction. No, sir, no, sir, no, sir. <laughs> All right, let's jump into the questions. Here's uh, Jeff May writing in from North Carolina. He said, uh, one of the recurring themes that Jay and his guests bring up uh, is to sample and sample often. Pulling samples from carboys and conicals is straightforward, but can you explain the different techniques for sampling from barrels? I've heard specific mention of using nails. Oh, yeah, sure. I actually think sampling from carboys is not that straightforward. But... Well, let's go over that then. Oh, maybe we should get an email from Jeff. I, apparently, he's, he's figured it out. He has, but Joe Homebrewer, who is listening, going, wait, what about carboys? Well, glass carboys, the only way to get at it is through the top. So it's going to be your siphon uh, tube, or you know, it can just be a length of hose, or it could be a wine thief, all of which are going to break the pellicle on top. It should be okay. It's going to reform, but I actually don't recommend sampling often in that case. I mean, you're, if you're a homebrewer, you're going more off of... Uh, taste and the cleanup of off flavors. What we're looking for at the Rare Barrel is uh, gravity consistencies and pH tracking and all this stuff that matters for sort of long-term bottle aging and the safety of beer going into the bottles. Like, you know, you don't want to bottle a beer at too high of a gravity or an instable gravity. You might be sending out bottle bombs. So that's what we spend a lot of our time on. But to answer that question, that's what we do spend a lot of our time on is we uh, will drill a, a, a hole into the barrel, and then uh, beer will shoot out. We collect that. So you drill w- with a full barrel. Yeah. Um, so we're drilling in. Beer comes out, collect it in a cup, put a stainless steel nail in there, and then we analyze that sample. And then when we go back to get more from that batch of that barrel, uh, we just have pliers. We pull out the nail, fill the cup, put the nail back in. Do you have to dip the drill bit in sanitizer before you drill? It's good to make sure that the drill bit's clean. They don't. I wish they made um, stainless steel drill bits, but I haven't found one. If oh, it, you know, maybe this is a great time to leverage the show. If uh, you're gonna you're gonna find one right now, I'm gonna look on Amazon. I mean, what don't they have? Because I've never looked on Amazon. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, <laughs> anyway, if anyone can find them, I forget the di- the diameter, but it's like seven sixty fours or some some weird diameter. Mm. Um, and if you just Google a uh, Vinny nail. Named after Vinny Chalurzo, then uh, yeah, that'll that'll get you a, a long way. I'm thinking that stainless steel drill bits have to exist because they use them in surgeries. Yes, so I know they have. Uh, I, we actually have a have a drill. It's not medical grade, but it it performs the same. This is not nothing to do with beer, but uh, when you're drilling as a surgeon, like let's say you're drilling into someone's like brain or something, a typical drill. You'll press the button, and then when you release it, it continues to spin a little bit. But if you're a brain surgeon, you know, you don't want that extra spin. When you're done, you want it to stop. So their drills are special because you drill in, and they just stop immediately when you take your finger off. Stainless steel? Yeah, I guess we could. I could call my all my brain surgeon friends up and uh, at, at, our, at our weekly poker game, and uh, I'll ask them about it. Are you looking to a medical supply company? Well, that's one thing. Yeah. Do. Or maybe like at the next uh, Republican debate, someone can stand up and ask Ben Carson that question. <laughs> hey, uh, is, do you have any stainless steel drill bits I can borrow? Uh, next question. 
Yeah. He, he was held up by a stainless steel drill bit at one point. So well, how come you wouldn't drill the, the hole before the barrel was full? Why? why? Oh, we could do that, too. You could, there's no difference? Uh, what's the difference? Well, I guess in one case, maybe more of the, the wood particular, particulate is coming out since there's so much liquid to go against it. Um, oh, instead of shavings getting into the barrel? I think you're going to get shavings in the barrel no matter what, but maybe some of it's going to come out. I don't know. Huh. There's, I guess there's no real difference. Well, I would just think that drilling a, uh, a hole in a barrel full of beer, maybe it's a small enough hole to where it's just a little sort of spout that comes out, mm-hmm. but I would just think it would be easier if you weren't dealing with a, some full of liquid. No? It's not too hard to deal with matter. full of liquid. Okay. Uh, but maybe we should start hey. changing the rare barrel technique, Scott. Per my advice? <laughs> I don't know. It's... Let's see how you do in the sour beer category at GBF next year. Once okay, you start well, following my right. advice. That is enough of that. <laughs> All right. Uh, here is Greg Keller. He says, Scott, uh, one T, right? <laughs> okay. <laughs> this question's for you. Great. I've got a question. Uh, okay. Here, uh, what would be the best way to maintain a house culture for someone who brews sours three to four times a year? I was thinking of keeping a gallon jug about half full with wort and bottle dregs from a bunch of different sour beers along with a handful of oak cubes. When ready to pitch, I would stir up the concoction and pitch a portion of my culture uh, and a few oak cubes, then refill my jug with some new wort to replace what I'm pitching. Uh, is this a viable idea? Uh, would it be best to keep this in the fridge or room temp? Uh, great question. I think that sounds like a great plan. I would keep the jug full, not half full. Because? Because if you're half full, then maybe you're getting some CO2 production, but over time that CO2 production is going to go down. And then you'll just have this kind of dormant blanket of CO2. And eventually air is going to mix where you're going to get air ingress into the jug and massive air exposure because the entire top of your uh, beer is going to be exposed to air. Now, hopefully you have a pellicle, but still, I mean, it's just not a good idea. But if you do have this this one-gallon jug that I'm thinking of, you fill it up towards the top, you know, you may have some re-fermentation. Maybe you do that and then... You fill it three-quarters of the way, re-fermentation, then top it off to the top. Just make sure there's less oxygen exposure. Um, And then one of the last things you said also triggered something in my mind. Temperature? Room temp or fridge? Yes, thank you. Uh, Room temp. It's fine. Okay. Uh, Would fridge not be viable? Or is there just no difference? No reason to put it in the fridge, I would say. Unless unless you uh, don't want to pitch a lot of the 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 beer that you're actually making in the one gallon jug that beer should taste good if you're going to you know basically you're making one gallon of beer if that beer tastes good then you're good to go pitch it all in but let's say you taste it and it tastes young or you know there shouldn't be major off flavors but let's say you know the bugs are strong but maybe the beer didn't turn out maybe you're doing a quicker turnaround then maybe you put it in the fridge yeast and maybe bacteria will fall out of suspension you decant off the beer that you made and then leave just a little bit left to be able to swirl up the, the dregs of the yeast on the bottom, and then you pitch that in. There you go. Uh, Bevo is signaling. Did you find stainless steel drill bits over there? I just emailed them to Jay. There you go. So not only will you be filling uh, or, doubt, uh, dr- drilling in empty barrels with stainless steel bits, you're ch- we're, we're, we're opening a whole new world for you here. We'll see. We'll see. I'll check, I'll check these bits out. Bevo's bits. Can you later on drop in like a, a roarous laughter to that joke? A laugh that track? Was, yeah, oh, like I will drop it in. No, no, they'll they'll be uproarious laughter. Awesome. By the way, last show, 
I wanted you to cut a drop from Jamil. Because he said, my house, my house culture is like, apparently my house culture is farts. Yeah. Take out apparently. And just, it'll be him saying my house culture is farts. Yeah. Maybe next year we'll start producing more. This year I'm just kind of farting around. Uh, And then I'm going to have you as well saying your farts smell delicious. Your farts taste great. Or something along those lines. Oh, I'm on it, Jay. I'm I'm a professional producer, man. I hope so. And then that Bevo's Bits one's pretty good. But you got to, you know, drop in the laugh track. Oh, I mean, uh, that's not that funny, though. That's, uh, Bevo's Bits are very serious. It's no laughing matter, and I shall be observing them with you. It's <laughs> so creepy. Serious business. Is this on live out there? Uh, yeah. <laughs> okay. Great. I'm really well, glad so I get to walk through the bar. Wa- yeah, I got to walk out of there. We'll, we'll, we'll wait a few minutes and have some more Degar beers. Our sincerest thanks to uh, Trevor Rogers. He's the head brewer of Degar Brewing. Uh, for joining us on the show tonight. We've got to have him back sometime. Thanks to uh, Sour Beer Blog, Wine and Hop Shop for sponsoring the show. And uh, yeah, go out there and listen to other B- uh, BN shows, and we'll see you next time. This is the Sour Hour. The Brewing Network.